0: Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up and coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative, and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trenton and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast.
1: All right, good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us for our Emerging Revolutionary War Revelry. Uh, For those of you who are new to our page and our topic, we do this uh, twice a week or excuse me, every other Sunday night here at 7 p.m. live uh, on our Facebook page. And we have a host of almost three years of uh, topics as well. So I encourage you to check those out. Uh, also, my name's Kevin Pollock. I'm a historian and uh, author with Emerging Revolutionary War. And it is my great pleasure to be joined tonight uh, by Jason Bohm. Jason, how you doing tonight? Doing great, Kev. Thanks very much for having me. You're very welcome, absolutely. Uh, Just so our readers, or our our viewers uh, are aware, I just want to read off your list of accomplishments that you have. I think you're well suited for our topic tonight, which is uh, your book, Washington's Marines, published with uh, Savas Beatty uh, earlier this year. So Jason is a Marine with more than 30 years of service. Uh, You're an infantryman by trade, and uh, you've got a whole host of uh, degrees and service that you have done. So you are certainly well suited. Uh, for writing a book about the early history of the United States Marine Corps. So I really am looking forward to this and uh, have some Marine Corps connections myself. So I was intrigued when this book came out, and I look forward to hearing a lot more about it. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and, and get into it, Jason. And you and I had some time beforehand to talk a little bit about the book. And I just wanted to hear your story of what inspired you to write the book. Obviously, there's the Marine Connection. Um, But you were telling me a little bit about that Marines are well aware of their history, but you thought there was a little bit more to the story, the early history of the United States Marine Corps.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. And uh, thanks for the question. And Again, thanks for having me on. And I do want to thank you and your team for helping to keep our history alive, as we talked about critically important today and everything particularly that's going on in the nation uh, today. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. Uh, So so. What's the inspiration for the book? Uh, Very simply, I have a great love for the Marine Corps and I have a great love for our country. So it was a a natural combination to bring these two things together and uh, really look at the birth of the Corps and the birth of the nation, which happened near simultaneously. In fact, the Marine Corps is older than the country uh, being established in November of 1775. But what I uh, really wanted to do is, uh, as you alluded to, is Marines uh, pay a lot of homage to our history and our traditions. In fact, knowing that history and tradition is a force multiplier on battlefields for us because we pay a lot of uh, attention to the accomplishments of those who went before us. And it's us striving every day to try and live up to the legacy uh, of those men and women who came before us and really sacrificed a lot in order to first win our freedoms and then preserve our freedoms and defend our way of life today. So it was natural for me to study more about the origins of the core, uh, because we all know the folklore, we know the popular stories, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper to really identify fact from fiction, to identify what's myth and what's reality. And so this project was something I I really took on for my own edification and, and to learn, a deeper understanding of our history and hand in hand with that, you can't get away from the creation of the Continental Army and the Navy and our nation at the same time. And then once I was able to accomplish that, and learn more about this history, I thought there's no way I can keep this to myself. I have to share the story with a more broader audience uh, so they can benefit as well from the, the great stories and the great characters throughout.
1: Very good. Yeah, that's what we like at uh, Emerging Revolutionary War too is the public history side of things, of being able to get people out to these sites, and like you said, just share the story um, as well. So I really want to get into the, the meat of the book and a lot of the details that you were able to dig up about the early history of the United States Marine Corps, and if you could just go start in more in a broad sense, Go ahead and explain what was the 18th century purpose of Marines, because um, the Continental Marines were certainly not the first Marines to be seen on planet Earth.
2: Yeah, that that's in fact true. And if if you want to think about Marine like uh, actions that occur on the sea and the land, it goes all the way back to ancient times. And I'll I'll give you a very simple example is uh, the Roman legions Uh, in Rome. The Roman legions, the land force was the more powerful arm of the Roman Empire. And so the Romans uh, could only go so far by land. If you really wanted to create an empire and spread that empire, you needed to go to the seas. So they determined a way in which they could leverage the strength of their land force on the oceans. And the way they did it is they employed something called a corvus. And a corvus is nothing more than a large plank with a hook on the end of it. And what they would do is they would row their boats close to the enemy boats, and drop this plank down so that their strength, the land forces could run across that plank and attack and take control of that enemy ship. Now, fast forward into the 18th century, the Continental Marines were modeled off of the Royal Marines because of the close association we had with the mother country. And some of those same duties that were being done by Roman Legionnaires were still done in the 18th century. So, uh, for example, We would uh, use uh, boarding parties in order to capture enemy ships if we could get close to them. In the same light, we would repel boarders from the other ships trying to take over our friendly ships. And the way we did this is we not only employed snipers from the high riggings and the fighting tops of ships shooting down to specifically target the enemy officers, but also lobbing grenades from the high ground of the ships onto enemy uh, uh, terrain, if you will. In addition to that, Marines manned the ship cannons side by side with their sailor friends. And that's a valuable skill that you'll see that uh, Washington's Marines employed in the book, and I'll explain that further in a moment. Uh, Marines at the time were generally known to be larger in stature than sailors, and for that uh, purpose they were used to maintain good order and discipline on ships as well they were the heavy arm of the captain uh, to be able to keep things in order and in fact one of their responsibilities was to also protect the captain and other officers on the ship from mutinous sailors who may have uh, devious de- uh, devices that they were uh, trying to employ on the ship themselves and then in addition to that because Marines had the unique ability to fight on land and sea, they would conduct limited operations ashore in support of naval campaigns. But unique to the continental Marines from America, our Congress wrote it into law when they created the Marines that they would fight on land and sea, which meant that they could be used to do a protracted land campaign ashore in support of the army if needed, And that's exactly what happened during the 10 crucial days of December 76 through January 77,
1: coming to the support of George Washington. So why did why was that special provision built in of being able to be used on land uh, and sea when the Continental Congress um, decided to adopt the Continental Marines in 1775?
2: Well, I think they they understood that Marines have always been able to do limited operations ashore, again, using the Royal Marines as a model. But normally that didn't go very far beyond the max effective range of the cannons on the ship. They like to stay within uh, uh, support and fires of the ships. But the uh, as you know, when we built the Continental Army at the start of the Revolutionary War, it was a nascent force that was built off of militia units that were provided initially by the New England states until it expanded to the other colonies as well, or other states as well. And so this provided us the flexibility to be able to utilize a limited force in a more expansive way as needed. And that's exactly what played out uh, during that, those 10 crucial days
1: very good so i want to get into the early history of the marine corps and if you could shed a little bit of light on this i think we all are familiar with the stories of tun tavern and and the founding of the marines itself but you dug a little bit deeper into that and like you said tried to separate myth from reality when it came to your research so go ahead and give us the the real early history of the founding uh, of the united states marine corps and why the continental congress really felt this need to create them in 1775
2: okay great and,
1: and what I will say is one thing that
2: is true that was myth it's reality. We were born in a bar and we like our <laughs> alcohol so uh, that still holds true today and I'll I'll talk more about that in a moment but really what everyone has to understand for context is uh, when conflict began between America and England uh, on August night. Uh, excuse me April 19 1775 at Lexington and Concord we really weren't prepared for war. And it was the militia, again, of the New England colonies that put the British under siege, which forced the Congress's hand to have to have a debate and make a decision on whether they were going to subsume the militia to create the Continental Army, which they did make that decision, putting George Washington in uh, at the head of the Continental Army as its commander in chief. But what people have to understand is we are a maritime nation. And particularly with the 13 original colonies being located on the eastern seaboard, their economies, the American economy, was tied to the sea and the internal waterways of our great nation. Also, what's key to understand at this time is the waterways were a more effective way of moving people and things than a second rate road network which was in constant state of repair and really relied on local forces to be able to create roads and keep them functioning. Much harder to move things by uh, ground than by sea. So the nation identified very early that it really needed a navy for two purposes First, not only to protect our own livelihood, our own commerce, and to be able to move from a military perspective, use the waterways as maneuver space to move military forces, but also to deny that of the enemy. For England, they were the British were much more challenged to resupply their forces because if it was... Uh, any heavy reinforcements or resupply, it would have to travel that 3000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. That's what we referred to in military jargon as external lines of communication. Whereas inside uh, America, we had internal lines of communication and can turn more quickly. But the problem was at the start of the war, we didn't have a Navy or Marine Corps. So that by necessity, the Continental Congress focused on establishing the Army first But then eventually they identified that we needed a naval force to do those things that I just identified. And in fact, uh, because we did not have a Navy to begin with, we used a couple of stopgaps until we could officially create a Navy and Marine Corps. The first one was the use of privateers. And privateers are commercially owned ships that were given letters of mark in order to become basically sanctioned pirates to capture British ships and that resupply that they were sending over. And oh, by the way, to use those supplies that we captured to arm and equip the Continental Army. The second stopgap was that we used soldiers to perform the function of Marines. And now I'll give you two examples of this. One was up on Lake Champlain, where Benedict Arnold had to create a freshwater Navy built on Lake Champlain in order to block Guy Carlton, who was attacking South from Canada with the intent of coming down Lake Champlain down through the Hudson River to link up with a British force moving up the Hudson River from New York and basically cut New England off. Uh, So uh, at a necessity, uh, Benedict Arnold pulled soldiers out of his line units in the Continental Army and impressed them to be sailors and marines and uh they did not perform very well in fact they had some very begrudgingly nasty things to say about uh the soldiers who served as marines as he described as basically the refuse of the the battalions as you can imagine the battalions were not sending their best people to go do marine-like duties the second example of that is george washington outside of boston keeping the british under siege he had them blocked via all land routes from reinforcements or supplies with the British back to the sea, but that was to their advantage because they controlled the seas. So he had to do something to truly isolate them in, uh, in Boston. And so George Washington on his own authority created his own local Navy. And just like Benedict Arnold, put pressed uh, soldiers from the ranks of the Continental Army to serve as Marines. And in fact, uh, John Glover from the Marblehead uh, Battalion uh, Regiment, rather, which became the 14th Massachusetts, uh, provided many of those soldiers who had sea fear and experience and Washington's first ship, which they named Ahana, after John Glover's wife. And uh, that fleet eventually grew to seven ships. It had some mixed results. But like uh, Benedict Arnold's experiences, George Washington was not enamored with his soldier Marines. And in fact, there's several quotes of him calling them mutinous and uh, they're deserters and they're abandoning the ship. And he had a very low opinion of them, similar to what he started to create in his mind towards militia forces as well. You know, there's another quote in there where Washington talks about relying on the militias like relying on a broken staff. And uh, he felt the same way about his soldier Marines. So the real with that context, the real event that forced the Continental Congress's hand to create the Marines was a letter that they received from the Committee of Safety from Passamaquoddy, Nova Scotia. These individuals were not enamored with England either and wanted to join, as they termed it, the Association of North America to fight against the mother country. Now the Congress started salivating at this and said, this is an opportunity to create a 14th colony in Canada against England, which would be obviously to their advantage and would protect their Northern flank. So they created a committee of three which consisted of John Adams from Massachusetts, John Langdon from New Hampshire, and Silas Dean from Connecticut, to develop a plan on how to accomplish what the people of Passamaquoddy were asking. And part of what they asked for was a naval campaign to come north to Nova Scotia and capture the British's principal naval base in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That committee of three met in the second story room of a building called Tun Tavern. And that is the real genesis for why we can call Tun Tavern the birthplace of the Marine Corps, because their plan uh, developed a course of action that would call for creating two battalions of American Marines. They took that plan, they briefed it on the 9th of November, 1775 to the Congress, and on the 10th of November, the Congress approved a plan to establish the Continental Marines. Hence, 10 November, to this day, is the official birthday of Marines. And to this day, Marines, regardless of where they are in the world, will celebrate the birth of our Corps every November 10th. And so I'll pause there, and I think we're going to talk about some of the characters of the Corps.
1: Yeah, you, you got into that with historically Marines were tougher men on ships, like you said, meant to, to prevent mutinous soldiers from taking over a ship and things like that. So who were some of the, the earliest Marines uh, in United States history? And how were they recruited into the Continental Marines itself?
2: Yeah, great, great question. And uh, just truth in advertising, my last command was the Commanding General of the Marine Corps Recruitment Command. So this is near and dear <laughs> to my heart. Uh, so the first Marine was a gentleman named Samuel Nick and he was actually commissioned on the 5th of November. And then John Hancock, who was the president of the Continental Congress at the time, signed his commission on the 29th of November. And because Nicholas was the first Marine, he also became the senior Marine and he was also the first Marine recruiter. So when the, when the committee of three came up with their plan to create this uh, these two battalions of Marines, The Congress actually uh, directed George Washington to do what he had earlier done. They told him to create the two battalion of Marines by extrapolating people from the army ranks who had previous experience at sea to create these two battalions. And they charged him with conducting the naval campaign to capture Halifax. Well, Washington is trying to build the army out of this nascent group of militiamen and is having all kinds of challenges in doing that. So he balks at the plan. Another reason why he was not enamored with Marines, because they were basically a draw on his resources for the Continental Army that he was struggling to strengthen and and make into a professional organization. So Congress acquiesced and they freed Washington from that requirement. But they went to the first commissioned officers in the Marine Corps and they were commissioned and Samuel Nicholas was commissioned in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Washington focused up north in New York. Samuel Nicholas's background, he was 31 years old at the time. He was a Quaker by birth, but his father died when he was seven and he was sent to the Academy of Philadelphia, which is today the University of Pennsylvania. He graduated at the age of 16. And once he graduated, he became a member of several social groups in Philadelphia area, which uh, made him acquaintance with many of the uh, senior and more prestigious people in the area, which likely had something to do with him receiving his commission as the first Marine. Um, He became a merchant and he also became the owner of the Conestoga Wagon Tavern in Philadelphia, which again, like Tun Tavern, which was owned by a, gen- a gentleman named Robert Mullen, who became a commissioned Marine Corps officer as well. Uh, you're starting to see the pattern here of the Marine officers uh, owning the local bars. And what they would do to help recruit people in is they hired fife and drummers who would go out into the town and they would play their fifes and drum to attract people and draw them into the tavern where the recruiting officers were waiting to sign them up. And in fact, you know, the the history of Don't Tread On Me, the, the drums that the recruiters used at the time had the rattlesnake, coiled rattlesnake and the Don't Tread On Me uh, painted on their drums that they were using at the time. And so they recruited the first Marines out of the local bars in Philadelphia. And uh, a, just a quick snapshot of, of what a Marine Corps organization looked like back then. I'll use Captain Isaac Craig, who was one of the initial officers that was commissioned. He recruited a 40-man company, and uh, most of his uh, Marines were immigrants. In fact, they were all immigrants. They came from England, Ireland, Switzerland, Holland, and Germany. All but one of them was recruited out of Philadelphia. Their average age was 25 and a half years old. The youngest was 18, the oldest was 40, and the average height was five foot, six inches, with the shortest Marine only five, three and a half inches and the tallest Marine six foot tall. And so that that is the start of the Continental Marines. And I'll just add one more uh, fact from friction here is a lot of people refer to Samuel Nicholas as being the first commandant of the Marine Corps. And the commandant is a senior ranking Marine in the Marine Corps today. And, but that is not a true statement. He was the first and senior officer in the Marine Corps, but the Congress did not bestow the, the title of commandant on the Marines until 1798, well after the American Revolution and during the Quasi War.
1: There's a fun fact for Marines that can share around bar conversation there, too. That's about right. Some of that's early that's worth a free of drink court. somewhere. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Very good. Now, do you know if there was anything that particularly attracted immigrants to the Marine Corps as compared to native-born Americans, or is that just the way it was in Philadelphia? Those were the recruits that that happened to...
2: Yeah, I think being Philadelphia, being one of the largest ports in the nation at the time, uh, there were a lot of seafaring men, and I think people gravitated towards what they knew. Uh, but interestingly, uh, the, if you look at the laundry list of skills at the that company that I described from Isaac Craig, uh, they, they brought every skill imaginable to their unit. They were butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, literally. Uh, there was a doctor, there were masons, carpenters, uh, uh, seamstress. I mean, they, they brought a wealth of different knowledge to the team. And I think that was probably common back then where people had to rely more on
1: what they could produce than uh, services. Mm -hmm. that makes sense so you you've touched on a little bit of george washington's relationship with the marines early on of course the marines are going to have a a a role in perhaps some of the most famous episodes of washington's military career with the 10 crucial days which we'll get to in a little bit but you've already covered a couple of the reasons as to why washington initially didn't really favor uh having the continental marines with him that it was a, a draw on manpower Uh, As you said, in his early experience of of taking foot soldiers and making them essentially uh, pseudo Marines, if you will, uh, on the seas did not impress him. Were there any other reasons that Washington uh, did not favor having the Continental Marines with him at all during the war? Yeah. So just for clarity, I think Washington
2: absolutely loved having the Continental Marines with him. He just didn't want to have to create them out of his own brain. And, okay. he adept, and and as you stated there uh, he did not have a positive experience uh, with the Marines that he created out of his own ranks initially um, he wasn't trusting of them and I think a lot of it had to do when you pull people out of the out of your units and have to give them up to somebody else again they weren't giving their best people forward um, and then uh, really the biggest reason was just the constant drain on resources and the fight for resources. In fact, as Samuel Nicholas was trying to equip and arm his Marines before they went out on the first uh, cruise um, down to the Bahamas, to New Providence, where they captured several cannons to support the Continental Army, um, they were challenged to be able to get their firearms, their muskets, because the Congress wanted to send the muskets north to Washington. And because Samuel Nicholas had some association with members of Congress by belonging to these social clubs in Philadelphia, he was able to basically leverage some of those relationships to get the muskets redirected back to the continental Marines so they could go forward. But another example is everything was in short supply at the time. So uh, the, the Marines and the sailors did a lot of service to the Continental Army by capturing British resupplies coming forward and then providing those supplies to the Continental Army. But because supplies were in such short supply and material was in such short supply, the Marines initially didn't even have a standard uniform because all available fabric was going to to provide uniforms for the Continental Army. So when the first Marines deployed, they deployed in civilian attire was what they came to the fight with. Uh, hodgepodge of different things uh, that they were wearing. Um, so that's just an, another example of, of why Washington uh, was not necessarily enamored with this force. That was a, a potential draw on the resources that he really needed to stand his army up.
1: And since we're talking about draw on resources, what was the size of the the Marine Corps um, at various points of the American Revolution when it you know, was first really established and then by the end of the war? What was the size that we're talking about? Yeah, really relatively small. Uh, So uh, by the war's
2: end, at its peak, we had 231 officers and 2000 enlisted Marines. That was it. You know, in comparison, uh, Washington, I think the Continental Army at its peak had uh, 64000 and that was probably in 1776 was when it was at its height.
1: Okay. All right. So there's still a small, always a smaller piece of the American armed forces, uh,
2: even then. Yeah. But what you'll see is that every single man counted, and mm-hmm. and quite frankly, probably the larger draw against the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Army, were the privateers, because the privateers uh, was a very lucrative offer for young men who were looking to collect prize money from the capture of British goods because they were able to sell the ships and sell the supplies either to the Continental Army or in in public and uh, a portion of that prize money went to the crew uh so that uh that really created a problem uh for all of the Continental forces
1: yeah any extra little bonus you can have while soldiering I guess is always gonna draw draw more troops from the ranks um so I want to get into um the 10 Crucial Days Quite a bit which i think is a story that's well known to americans of washington crossing the delaware of course and attacking the hessians uh, at trenton and then engaging the british at princeton uh, a few days later early in january of 1777 and the marines had a role in all of this i'm just going to kind of open the floor to you and and tell us about the role of the continental marines in these 10 crucial days Uh, and again probably one of the most dramatic military episodes of of all of American military history
2: agreed yeah and and people just don't even know that Marines and sailors were part of this but they absolutely Mm -hmm. were in fact uh the number of Marines and sailors operating on the Delaware River and the shore with Washington comprised nearly a quarter of his total force and a lot of people don't realize that but the force that was used to support uh George Washington on the ground was a battalion of Marines led by Samuel Nicholas. And so Nicholas and the Marines uh, did an initial cruise, as I alluded to, down to New Providence, Bahamas, on board the first fleet of, uh, it was seven ships that went down there. When they came back, uh, Samuel Nicholas was promoted from captain to major, and he was assigned with recruiting four detachments or four companies of Marines to fill out the marine detachments on board four frigates that were being constructed in Philadelphia. Now, the in December of 75, the Continental Congress authorized the uh, construction of 13 original frigates, and they spread load the construction of those frigates across all the major ports in the 13 colonies. Pennsylvania's portion of that were four frigates being built in Philadelphia. So Nicholas uh, takes three of those uh, Marine detachments from three frigates, the Effenham, the Delaware, and the Washington. And he formed a battalion of Marines that was approximately uh, 120 to 130 Marines large. The fourth detachment that belonged to the Randolph was left in Philadelphia because that ship was the first one to be uh, near completion. And they wanted to put that ship to the sea. So uh, Nicholas takes his battalion and rows upriver and joins George Washington outside of Trent. And this is as Washington had just been defeated several times throughout the New York campaign and then retreating across New Jersey. And his force of nearly 19,000 soldiers he started the New York campaign with had been dwindled down to only about 2,500 that were still with him. Now some others were posted in different areas, but due to desertion and disease and casualties and ended enlistments, he only had 2,500 left with him. They linked up with uh, Washington on the New Jersey side of Trenton and Washington uh, was asking for support from the Continental Congress. That's why Samuel Nicholas and the Marines got sent to him to assist him. And there was another organization of Philadelphia militiamen known as the Associators. And the Associators created a brigade, a brigade of three battalions under the command of a, a gentleman named John Caldwalder. Caldwalder met with uh, Washington outside of Trenton and Washington asked him, hey, go over and talk to those Marines and find out what their purpose is here. Do they mean to operate on the water, on the Delaware River, or do they mean to operate on, this, on the land? They determined that they were there to support the army. Basically, Nicholas's armies were, go find Washington and do anything you can for until the fight is over, then come back. It was that broad and general and, and guidance, because uh, we were at a crisis moment. Well, Washington, uh, took the Continental Marine Battalion and assigned it to Caldwalder's Brigade of Associators as an independent battalion. So they weren't uh, integrated into the brigade. They were still an independent battalion, but under Caldwalder's command. So initially, Washington brings the rest of the Continental Army across the Delaware into Pennsylvania. And he believes that the British and Hessian forces are gonna continue to attack across the river and try and capture Philadelphia where the Congress was located. Now, smartly, what he did was halfway across the retreat of New Jersey, he sent word forward to collect every boat on the Delaware River for 70 miles north from uh, Philadelphia. And therefore, when the British and Hessians showed up to the river, there was no way for them to cross. They did a feeble attempt to try and find any boats, but there were none available. So Washington thought, hey, as soon as the ice forms on the river, the British and Hessians may walk across the river and still attack North to take Philadelphia. So the initial task that the Continental Marines had with the rest of the force was to guard the river line. And they basically had about 40 miles worth of shoreline on the Delaware River, that the uh, continental forces were prepared to repel a crossing by the, uh, the Hessians and the British forces. At the same time, he was sending them in small groups across the river to collect intelligence and to harass the enemy. And basically, they were wearing them down uh, by pinpricking them with a few casualties here, a few casualties there, striking them at uh, unintended locations, surprising them. And uh, that was starting to numb the Hessian forces to these uh, limited raids and activity of continental forces going on um, in the New Jersey side of the river. What Washington was really doing was he was buying his time to allow three conditions to occur. First, uh, he needed to consolidate more forces And he had called Charles Lee and uh, Horatio Gates to come south from New York with additional continental forces. They arrived. Second, he was uh, trying to collect intelligence on the enemy to know where to strike. And third, he was waiting for the enemy to make a mistake. And the Hessian forces did that when Van Donop, who was the senior Hessian on the New Jersey side, drew a large portion of his force to the west to deal with a militia force that had crossed the river down by Philadelphia. So with the conditions right, Washington comes up with his bold strike to attack attack the Hessian forces in Trenton that are now isolated uh, in order to win the day and cease the initiative from the enemy. In order to do that, everyone's familiar with Washington's force 2,400 Continental Regulars who crossed at McConkey's Ferry nine miles north of Trenton and then attacked for nine miles through the blizzard to capture Trenton. But that was really only one of four efforts that occurred that night. He was the main effort, but there were three other support efforts. There was a support and effort of New Jersey and Pennsylvania militia that was supposed to cross the river just south of Trenton and capture the bridge crossing the Assunpink Creek, which transverse through the south side of Trenton to block the Hessians escape route. Support and effort two was consistent of John Callwalder, the Associators and the Continental Marines. Their mission was to they were about 12 miles further downriver. They were to cross over and basically create a blocking position and attack any Hessians in the area to create confusion and to prevent von Donop's force from being able to come back towards Trenton to reinforce Trenton when it was under attack. And then there was a final militia force led by Admiral, or excuse me, General Putnam, that was to send more militia over from Philadelphia to do the same thing, basically fix von Donop in place to prevent their ability to reinforce Washington. So unfortunately, washington's main effort was the only one that successfully crossed the river that night the militia that was supposed to across uh, south of trenton uh, had very dangerous ice conditions on the river they didn't even attempt it uh the marines and the associators actually got two-thirds of their force across the river before the a blizzard hit it was a nor'easter and the conditions became so dangerous that they couldn't land their artillery so Caldwalder aborted the mission and brought all of his people back over to Pennsylvania, thinking that that was what happened with all the other efforts going on that evening that night. What he didn't know is that Washington was successful. So the next morning, Caldwalder and the Marines were on the Pennsylvania side, and Caldwalder's in the process of writing a letter to Washington to say, hey, why don't you come down here, join us, and we'll go across the river together. And all of a sudden, he hears counting fire coming from the vicinity of Trent. And they go, what the crap? And then they see Hessians fleeing on the New Jersey side of the river. Well, the Marines are fired up and the Associators are fired up. And they're like, hey, we need to get in a fight. So they make the decision to cross over into New Jersey to join Washington in the fight at Trenton. They successfully cross over that next day, unbeknownst to the fact that Washington, after successfully capturing the Hessians at Trenton, Cross back over into Pennsylvania. Now they're still on opposite sides of the river. Well, Kohlwalder and the Continental Marines attack towards Trenton, and they're trying to capture Von Donop's forces who are now in a full retreat because of the unexpected attack. They're trying to retreat back towards Princeton to join some uh, British forces that are held out there. They chase them all the way back to Princeton. They only capture about 50 stragglers. And then Callwalder writes a letter to Washington and says, hey, we control the area over here. Come on back over here and let's continue the attack. We can recapture even more of New Jersey. They make the decision to do that. Washington recrosses by the end of the month and he consolidates all of his forces on the south side of Trenton. And they set up a defensive position in a very strong location on the south side of the Punk Creek using that as a natural barrier and they are set up on the high ground overwatching the water so they can get plunging fire on the british as they attack and then there are several choke points where they place their cannons because they know there are only two ford points and then the bridge crossing that the british will have to come across otherwise they get washed down the creek well at this time uh uh, excuse me, General Howe, who's in charge of the British, pulls Lord Cornwallis, who is trying to go home to be with his sick wife, puts him in charge of the forces. They take 10,000 troops. They attack south from Princeton and they attack Washington and his forces three times at the Ossampunk Creek and what becomes the Battle of Ossampunk Creek or the Second Battle of Trenton, as some people refer to it. Three times the Americans repulsed the British. And after the first attack where Washington saw where Cornwallis was focusing his main effort, the Marines and Associators were located on the right flank of the key location of the Creek Bridge, where the, the British and Hessians were trying to force their way across. So Washington pulled the Marines and reinforced that main effort right at the heart of the battle at the bridge crossing, and so they actively participated in that that main effort defense of the bridge. After three unsuccessful attacks, the night comes in. Cornwallis pulls his forces back, and he says, "Hey, we'll bag the fox in the morning," referring to George Washington. Washington's bank uh, back is against the Delaware River. He has nowhere to go. He can try and attack, uh, as you were. He can try and withdraw to the to the west but the British would just cross the bridge and chase them down. They could attack the British as a spoiling attack, but they were vastly outnumbered. They can stay in place on the creek and let the British come to them again, but the British had already figured out they could cross further north and basically do a flanking attack on the American forces and defeat them. Or they could try and cross the river, but they had no boats. So Washington very wisely makes the bold decision to attack further into enemy-held territory. And he does it by creating a ruse in which he leaves 500 militiamen in the American lines, stoking the campfires and making a lot of noise as though the troops were digging in. And then he pulls all of his force out and they march 11 miles further north to capture the British holdout in Princeton. The Marines are part of that effort they are still moving with the Associated Brigade, which is now part of Green's division. And when they uh, get outside of Princeton in the early morning of uh, January morning, uh, they have a chance meet and engagement with British forces that are been directed to come from Princeton to go south to Trent to reinforce Cornwallis for his final assault across the Ossipunk Creek Bridge. That battle ensues. Uh, Hugh Mercer and his brigade are the first one to en- engage with the British. The British outnumber Hugh Mercer's brigade. Colwalder and the Marines are down in a low sunken road by Stony Brook. They hear the battle commencing. They pull out onto the high ground. And Colwalder basically tries to form his brigade with, The Marines taking a position on their right flank. But as they're trying to form, Hugh Mercer is bayoneted several times, shot off his horse, and his brigade is in a full retreat. So as the Marines and Kohlwalder are trying to form, it's disruption and confusion because you have Mercer's brigade in the midst of them running in the opposite direction with the British hot on their tail. That causes everyone to slowly turn and they retreat back 150 yards. They hold there after firing a couple of uh, uh, volleys at the British and George Washington shows up at this decisive moment. He and Col. Walder talk. And if you look at the cover of uh, Washington's Marines, the book, it has that picture of George Washington pointing to the Marines, pointing to the British and go back and, and attack. The Marines with the uh, Associators counterattack, and they basically win the day. They defeat the British, the British uh, disintegrate on the battlefield, and then the rest of the main effort of the Continental Army captures uh, Princeton uh, during the remainder of that battle. But it doesn't end there. So those are basically the 10 crucial days. And once that is done, Cornwallis now finds out that he has been duped by Washington again, just like he was in the battle for Brooklyn Heights. And he retreats, doesn't retreat, but turns the army around and quickly moves back to Princeton to try and uh, engage Washington. Washington very wisely takes his troops and moves up to Morristown in the mountains of New Jersey. While he gets there, the enlistments of several of his soldiers terminate and they depart the pattern, and there was still disease and casualties taken that further depleted his uh, ranks. And he would engage in what was referred to as the Forge War from this point. But the problem was Henry Knox, who was in charge of the Continental Artillery, is looking around and he now has more cannons than he has people to man them. So he needs somebody with the expertise to man these cannons. And he looks at the versatility of the Marines and goes, wait a minute, don't those Marines know how to fire shipboard cannons from their time at sea? Absolutely correct. These are the same types of guns. Land guns are a little different. They have a longer barrel and they have a different carriage that they sit on. But basically they function the same way. So Henry Knox requests George Washington to assign the Marine battalion to become the Corps of Continental Artillery for the Army, which they do. And they will do that for approximately four more months during the Forge War before they eventually all return to their ships in Philadelphia. And that landed, uh, excuse me, that ended the first protracted land campaign of the the Marine Corps. Sorry, that was a
1: long story, but they did a lot. No, that was perfect. I was expecting that. I gave you an open door for that and um so i I did want to ask about that um real quick because of course your book is the origins of the marine corps and only goes to 1777. so uh is is there a second project in the works uh to fill out the rest of the history of the marine corps in the american revolution
2: yes thank you for asking that And the answer is yes Uh, i have a good friend and a mentor named uh, charlie niemeyer is uh retired Marine himself and former director of the History Division for the Marine Corps, uh, a published author himself. And he and I are working on a collaborative effort which will pick up the Marines and the Continental uh, Marines in the Revolutionary War and cover basically 1778 and 79. Uh, It's going to talk about the Western Campaign. We'll talk about Marine operations on the Mississippi River in 78. And then I will also cover the Penobscot Expedition Uh, that occurred in what is today modern day Maine, uh, which is another incredible story. A lot of people don't know this, but the greatest naval disaster in American history for 164 years, all the way up until the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Uh, We lost 42 ships to the British as they were trying to establish a new colony called New Ireland in what is today modern day Maine but the only success in that entire operation were those efforts that were led by Marines. They captured an island, they captured a British uh, position, and they scaled a two to 300 foot cliff after an assault landing with the enemy firing down on them and captured that high ground to establish a foothold uh, to fight the British with the, the rest of their force. So, so really excited gets... about that project uh we're coming along on it and uh and hopefully we'll come to a conclusion on it for publication shortly
1: very good well that's exciting to hear because the, yeah the story goes well beyond um, 1777 but I think you've done a really nice job with this book of of filling in that early history and like you said separating a little bit of fact from fiction so we're, we're running short on time but I want to give you plenty of time for this question because I think you provide a real interesting look at the early history of the Marines, not only because you're a historian and author, but you are a Marine of over three decades of service as well, for which we we thank you. So my last question that I want to end with is what can the Marines of today learn from the Marines of the American Revolution? Yeah, another great question. So
2: I, I think I probably focus on three things. Uh first and foremost is we today train our Marines to be flexible, adaptable, problem solvers because we are the nation's premier crisis response force today you never know what crisis or contingency you're going to find yourself in. and in fact we have thousands of marines forward deployed and forward engaged across the globe today that's the principal difference from when we were just defending our homeland and because of that uh we also have you know one of our monikers is the first to fight and we can say that because we're already there We're across the globe today. Therefore, we can be right at the point of friction when something occurs. But we never know what that's going to be. So we train our people. uh, You train for certainty and you educate for uncertainty. So we train them with specific skills, but we educate them to understand that they're going to have to do whatever the mission requires. And that requires a critical thinker who has the flexibility and adaptability to adapt to the circumstances and come out with a win. And so that initially began, you could argue, with Samuel Nicholas and that 1st Battalion of Marines, as they went from shipboard duties to having to fight a protracted land campaign in the middle of a winter, to having to be artillerymen for the army, all in a very short span of time. So that, I say, would be the first one. The second one is our roots are tied to the fleet. Marines, although we fight on the land and sea, we belong to the fleet. And that is very much true today as well in the fact that today the term that we use is naval integration. Now, to be clear, we are a distinct branch of service. We are part of the Department of the Navy, but the Department of the Navy consists of the Navy and the Marine Corps, two separate and distinct branches. But we have a symbiotic and closely tied relationship. We fight from the sea. So we have to be connected at the hip with our Navy brothers and sisters and learn how to fight as a cohesive team. And that all began back in the day with the Continental Marines. And it proves to be just as uh, powerful today. And the third lesson I'll share is probably the winning mentality of Marines. You know, we we train our people to understand we don't fail. The nation is relying on us. Therefore, you will do everything to place your mission first and accomplish your mission. There's an ethos in the Marine Corps. It doesn't matter what your job is, just like I explained when we created the Marines, why did they fight on land and sea? Limited resources, limited people, and although we are much smaller than the Continental Army was, even today, we're much smaller than the U.S. Army or the Navy or the Air Force. So our people have to be multifaceted to be that flexible, adaptable, problem-solver. And that requires a winning mentality. So we will push you to the limit to understand where you can go before you meet your breaking point. And then we're going to push you beyond that because we know that we call it your culminate. We know that your culminating point is actually beyond what you think it is. So in peacetime, we train people and push people to that limit so that when that does happen for real, uh, they don't get overwhelmed by the, the fog and the friction of war and they will succeed in everything that they get assigned to do. Those are
1: very good and I think very good lessons for uh for not just Marines today, but for all of us too, I think that we can take away from the, the Marines of the American Revolution. Uh, so Jason, I wanted to thank you again very much for taking some time out of your schedule. Again, for those of you who don't already have the book, it's Washington's Marines published this year, 2023, uh, by Savas Beatty. It is uh, worth adding to your bookshelf, whether it, you're a, a Marine or just a historian of the American Revolution. So Jason, again, thank you very much And for those of you who are watching, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Our next. Rev War Revelry is going to be on Sunday, September 3rd, once again at 7 p.m., broadcast on our Facebook page, and it's going to be with historian and author Christian Despigna about founding martyr Joseph Warren. So uh, for those of you who are interested, you can find us, of course, online at EmergingRevolutionaryWar.com. And Jason, again, thank you very much for this engaging talk and for the research you did and the storytelling you did about Washington's Marines in the early years of the American Revolution.
2: It was my honor, Kevin. Thank
1: you.